Welcome to Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle, and I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. For season three, we are sitting down with some of the most successful founders to better understand what entrepreneurship means to them, the operational processes they have employed on their startup journey, and what lessons they've learned along the way. Today's episode is with Andy Shovel, co-founder at This. This described themselves as what happens when two meat lovers checked out the meat-free section and decided they didn't want any of it. This is plant-based meat, and they're taking over more and more aisles at your local supermarket. In this episode, we find out how Andy built the company. Andy, welcome to Riding Unicorns. Awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, cheers for inviting me and for the interest in what we're up to. Not at all. Great to have you on. So what does entrepreneurship mean to you? It's, it's definitely not a particularly level playing field when it comes to entrepreneurship. So that's probably the first thing that comes to mind. I think a word association, if we're playing a word association game, a lot of stress and a huge amount of personal development, I would say. I've been, I've been hustling away with startups for over a decade and well over a decade now. And I've definitely taken on a lot of new skills a lot more patience and just all sorts of qualities and skills that I never would have imagined I would, I would have at this point, I suppose. So yeah, that's probably what it means to me in broad strokes. And Andy, you, after university, you founded the company straight away. So what, what was the drive to do that? Why did you not go and just get a graduate role or go down a more traditional route? I did always know from when I was about 16, that I wanted to be a founder. I did work experience. I was fortunate enough to get a few placements when I was doing my A-levels and, you know, throughout summers and stuff in different companies. And it became clear to me through my terrible performance and feedback that I would not make a particularly good employee and that perhaps I was naturally better suited to being a founder and expressing the more creative sides of my personality and, and, and being as assertive as I wanted to be naturally. And so, yeah, it felt like the right kind of job spec for me, I would say. So what, actually motivates you in in this space like obviously it's uh obviously it's a really hot space you've done a number of different things in the past and you know you've done stuff in food i think before what is it about the, the vegan veggie food space or the meatless space that really you know excites you and and is it that you're on a mission to save the environment to reduce meat consumption or did you just sense an opportunity or yeah what is it so it's quite a weird one this because the answer now is actually quite different from the answer at point of kind of conception of the business. I've become very unexpectedly mission driven and I, I, I really um, didn't see that one coming. But essentially the, the first answer to go chronologically, Pete and I, two, two founders of this, we, we um, sold our fast food business, which was very much a meat dependent kind of a, a business. Um, we sold it in 2016 and we laid down, I suppose, a prescription for the next business. And we considered things like it has to be an enormous market opportunity in a, a real kind of growth area. It has to be in sustainability in some way. And it also has to play into some of the skills and experience that we've built up over the years. And so we quite kind of unromantically landed on plant-based food because it was a bullseye for each of those different criteria that we laid down. At the time, we were both meat eaters. You know, we were sort of meat reducing, I guess, but nothing to write home about. And then shortly after the journey began, I would actually say quite independently of the startup, I decided to give up animal products. I had a kind of like 
almost instant uh, U-turn, actually. I saw a video of chicks being crushed when they were a couple of days old, which is what happens in the egg industry. And I just watched that. The person who showed me told me that it's commonplace in the UK and Europe because male chicks won't go on to lay eggs and they're not suitable for meat. And chicks are very, very sweet, as you probably know. And so um, it annoyed me and disgusted me. And I thought that's the end of that. So subsequently, I've become very driven at work by my personal beliefs that, you know, there's a lot of cruelty and pretty undesirable practices going on in the meat industry. So yeah, didn't see that one coming. That was a bit of a curveball. I thought it was really interesting how you kind of labeled out those requirements for the next big thing that you were going to do together, which is, which is great because we haven't had many people talk about that process so much. What did you do once you'd settled on the idea? How did two guys with an exit in the food space go about creating a completely new plant-based food business? The first thing we did was a bit of a safari and try and understand what was at the leading edge of this space and, and what was most exciting from a textural flavor perspective, you know, branding perspective. So we essentially spent a lot of time visiting supermarkets, both in the UK and abroad. We went to the States for a couple of weeks to try all of the different plant-based products that were available over there. We went to Europe and we tried everything there and we wanted to build up a picture of what was currently possible today from a technical perspective as well as, as I say, from a branding and marketing perspective. And then from there, we wanted to kind of make the final decision as to like, okay, do we feel that there's some promising stuff here that we should, we should, we can build on or, or not kind of thing. And, and then we did, we did determine to, that, that we could probably um, make some improvements and develop some IP from what was already out there. And I'm sort of skipping some other bits like speaking to a lot of industry experts, doing a lot of LinkedIn stalking and emails to people being like, hey, can we have a chat? I want to learn about the space. We probably spent about five months or so building up a, a really comprehensive picture of, of the space and where we could potentially slot in, both from a product perspective and a brand perspective. So I suppose that was step one, you know, doing that safari and then and building up a network of consultants, scientists, business people, all of whom were experts in the space and try and like download bits from each of them. Super interesting. I mean, we, we've talked about the space and I, I think it is, it's got to be one of the hottest and, and most exciting emerging spaces, the, the meatless, meatless meat space. So um, yeah, and lots of people are super interested, including it, including lots of our listeners, I'm sure. I'm curious to understand whether, you know, whether you feel there have been challenges presented by how contentious it is or how much it lands in the press and I suppose how exposed you are to campaigners or, or people who feel very strongly about this stuff um, and whether you've yeah had to deal with things that perhaps other other early stage founders don't have to deal with. When you say we're exposed to campaigners and stuff I think most of the campaigning in the area is, is against meat rather than plant-based meat so I don't feel that we have much exposure on that side of things, there are a few criticisms that some people might level at the, at the kind of food that we make. So I suppose, you know, one has to understand like what credible rebuttals we can have for those criticisms. But no, generally speaking, I don't feel particularly hard done by in terms of being exposed to much contention or to be honest, a lot of the contention is very self-inflicted because we have quite a risk heavy appetite for 
as a brand. And so we're often caught in controversy. So I have no one to blame but myself, really, for any controversy that comes our way. Yeah, I think you guys have done a really good job at keeping the theme of, as a strong tailwind for, for everything that you're doing. And you've raised a Series A this year. You've done very well at fundraising. What was that process like? And what advice would you have for other founders when fundraising? I would say that for us, the process was actually relatively low stress this time around. We've definitely had more stressful rounds. I think in terms of advice for other founders, I suppose leverage is everything. So creating a competitive environment, if you can, is uh, the name of the game. Also, I would strongly recommend crowdfunding to founders who have any sort of exciting consumer component to their business or perhaps even just founders who have a story to their business, which, which, you know, the, the, the retail investment market might be excited by, because I think crowdfunding has proved itself to me personally as a, as a really like viable, relatively frictionless way to raise money. But to be honest, like all of that's kind of easier said than done, isn't it? Cause most of the work is front loaded and you have to like show good performance and put everything in place before you actually go funding to have a successful round rather than like turn up and then do things to make your round really successful. It's mostly front-loaded. No, it's really, it's, it's good to hear you say that because I, I'm a massive advocate for, for crowdfunding. I think it's done a lot of good stuff. I think it still has its struggles in terms of kind of largely indexing the, the certainly not top quartile companies, but I think it is different for consumer brands where there is a genuine value add to crowdfunding. And so in that space, it does attract really good companies. But I think a lot of people kind of go into it thinking this is going to be a lot of work for not that much money and other investors really going to start buying our products and become brand advocates. Have you, have you found a way to, to measure or do you have an idea of, of the sort of the benefits to, to crowdfunding for you guys? I, I don't really have anything tangible for you. And to be honest, when I was you know, suggesting it as a, a really like credible route to funding, I, I actually was more talking about just purely the access to capital side rather than the sort of fringe benefits you get of onboarding more advocates because the money for founders, the money definitely has like fewer strings attached than it does when you raise from an institution or from sophisticated angels. So in that respect, it's a really good option for founders because actually a lot of the strings that come attached from institutional money can be undesirable for some founders. So that's mostly the kind of angle I was coming from. Yeah, sure. And um, just just moving on through from that sort of topic and more towards the product itself, which I've tried. I think I've tried your bacon. Is there a bacon product? Yes, um, we have a bacon alternative, which is our bestseller currently. And um, we have a plant-based chicken products. We've got uh, plant-based sausages just launched recently, uh, plant-based lardons. Nice. Yeah, so I tried your bacon and thought it was great. I wonder how you how you guys kind of deal with yeah, I don't know if you even do have to deal with criticisms around this may be meatless, but it's less healthy. And how, how do you guys think about kind of providing really healthy meat-free food as well as tasty meat-free food? I think it's really important for people to make fair comparisons. That That's the first thing. So I think a lot of people fall into the trap of comparing our plant-based bacon to a grilled aubergine. And grilled aubergines are fantastic, but they're not a particularly good replacement for bacon if you want something that's got good proximity in terms of taste and texture and everything else. Um, so I think they hear plant-based and they think, well, I know a plant-based thing, you know, a cauliflower or a carrot or whatever. And actually, I think we should be compared to bacon because 
that's what we're trying to substitute out. When you compare our plant-based bacon to bacon, you find a very compelling nutritional story. So, you know, we've got more protein. We've got zero saturated fat. Bacon is classed as a group one carcinogen by the World Health Organization. So that's the same category as cigarettes. So it's a definitively cancer-causing foodstuff. And we obviously don't have those qualities. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. But essentially, when you make fair comparisons, generally speaking, we are much more favorable from a health perspective. You know, same with our sausages as well. Less fat, less salt, less saturates, less everything. And and then more of the good stuff. So you've got lots of protein and, you know, so that's the kind of position I take, I guess. And I think there's often, you know, when you get into these conversations, sometimes like, oh, it's processed comes up and all oh, list of ingredients. And there are a couple of things to bear in mind. Like when you think about your chicken or your beef, those foodstuffs are very fortunate insofar as they don't need to declare an ingredients deck. They just say chicken or beef, which I've always found quite puzzling in the last, well, not always, but in the last few years, because chicken is not just chicken. <laughs> chicken has a very, very long list of ingredients. Some of which actually will be probably medicinal, very un- undesirable in trace quantities. But there are all sorts of funky acids and compounds that go into making your chicken or your beef. But as I say, they don't have to declare ingredients decks, which is weird. And in terms of processing, I think that it's a sort of like lazily adopted stereotype and for, for this type of food, because I think it's new and people are skeptical of it sometimes. Generally speaking, the majority aren't skeptical of it, but I say it's sort of lazily adopted because if you get somebody that comes up to you hypothetically and says, oh, your plant-based chicken's processed, I'm not having that. And then you go, okay, that's interesting. What, what about your toast in the morning? You know, like, and they're like, what about it? And you're like, well, I don't think the loaf of bread came out the ground like, like that. It's gone down a process. And, and if you take pasta, which is actually more pertinent to, to what we make, Pasta is actually processed using the same machine that we make most of our products with. There's a difference in temperatures and water content um, and that kind of thing. But essentially, they are the same machine with some retrofitted components. And so that often shocks people who are saying that it's processed. Like, well, your pasta, your fusilier is just as processed as our food. I suppose at this stage, it's skepticism and it's the unknown. People aren't familiar with long lists of ingredients, some of which they haven't heard of yeah. their food, you know, pasta, they're used to it, it's flour and water. Whereas, you know, all these new ingredients, good or bad, it's just the unknown. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I've had it and I'm still here, so it can't be that bad. I had your chicken through Planty, which is a plant-based meal delivery service, and it was great. And I also had it when I've been to the supermarket, I've bought this. So my question really is around channels. How important are different channels to you? Retail versus D2C versus um, partnerships with other companies? Yeah, so for us, the two predominant channels are food service. So like restaurant groups and pubs and that kind of thing. And then the retail sector as well. And for us, the retail sector is delivering bigger volumes. So most of our business goes through retail. But the food service side of the business is incredibly important. It's a fantastic brand building tool. So most of our partners, in fact, almost all of our partners co-brand with us. So they'll put this isn't chicken on their menu in the restaurant and on their marketing materials. Essentially, you can think of it like 
you know, all these fantastic satellite marketing partners that we have. And that enables us to build a much larger marketing brand awareness machine than we would have on our own. So the restaurant business is fantastic. And of course, it also delivers volume and, and, and top line growth, which is great. So I'm completely in love with the restaurant side of our business. And then the retail side is where the real tonnage goes at the moment. So we're stocked in pretty much all of the major UK supermarkets, apart from Audi and Lidl and a couple of others. So with the money that you've raised to date through the various rounds, what does that money unlock for you guys? What do you spend it on? What does fundraising mean to you? And what do you do with the money you can raise? The first point is it unlocks more grown up marketing budgets for us, which is very exciting because we're still not a profit making business. It's very important for us to have those resources on the marketing and brand building side. Also, we're investing quite heavily in innovation. So we are spending £2 million in the next sort of six months or so on completing our London-based innovation center, which eventually will have a more fun name when I'm feeling really pithy and I can think of one. But basically, it's a large building in West London that we've taken and the building work starts in a couple of weeks. And that's going to be a purpose-built, hopefully really state-of-the-art facility for our innovation team. So that's food scientists, process engineers, food technologists, they're all going to be housed there and doing practical work and bench top work. It's going to be a lab there and a pilot facility downstairs. So that's where some of the money's going. And then also just general working capital for the business and also increasing our manufacturing capacity and some other things like flash swivelly chairs and all the rest of it that you'd expect. Yeah. And just following on from that, James, I know you, you have a question you want to ask, but following on on the same thread with innovation. It's quite interesting speaking to you because we normally speak to software founders and, and these are people who, you know, releasing a new product means tweaking some code, getting product managers to, to make changes and manage teams to do those changes. For you guys, it's obviously really different. You're working in physical products. We'd call it hardware. <laughs> and so, yeah, how does, how does your process go from, you know, idea generation taking feedback from customers and translating that into product. How do you think about product development and innovation? Well, I suppose there's one prevailing thought that we try and keep in mind and then everything permeates from there. But that top line thought is probably to make sure that whatever we make is a really no compromise alternative to the animal based product. So it's a slightly clunky way of saying like our guiding style should always be that people don't notice the difference from going from animal products to plant-based products. So that's number one priority, really. And then from there, it depends somewhat on the product you're making, but you can consider what technologies, that's probably the first thing, is what technologies are available to us to accurately simulate that eating experience that you get from the animal-based products. So there's always that kind of like fact-finding mission that goes on at the beginning of an innovation project, like what's out there. And also what can be changed and innovated because we obviously want to build up IP for the business. So we filed a few patents actually so far to, to try and build some defensibility into what we're doing. And so, yeah, that's, that's step one. And then I guess after that sort of like more theoretical work of like, okay, what's out there, what's possible, then it's just quite practical from there. So you'll start to do recipe formulation work. I like to seek out world-leading experts in whichever fields we are working in. So if we're doing something in emulsification, I'm very keen on us always tapping up, you know, some incredibly 
maverick and talented professor in, you know, wherever it is, Belgium or America or whatever, and getting them on board to get some creative scientific ideas in. Because for me, like, it's very important that we don't become one of these me too, like plant-based product brands, which is just churning out like very, very similar, very similar products, you know, and prioritizing speed over quality. Because obviously the market's moving so fast, there's a big temptation from everybody in the space to just churn out innovation off a conveyor belt really quickly so they can cash in. But actually what we've learned from kind of the hard way in a way is, is, is to make sure that we take our time and we only release something when there's a real step change on, on what's out in the market. And when this comes out, it will be Christmas almost on our doorstep. So how do you try and tackle kind of ingrained societal habits like having a turkey for Christmas? Well, I think the, the turkey occasion might be slightly limited because I think most people might confess that they don't really like turkey that much and they only like it once a year. But what we are doing, to put a positive spin on it, is uh, we've just launched, or we've announced today actually, our new Thismus range. I haven't got very good at saying that yet. Thismus. That's much better. I don't know why I went with Thismus. Thismus. Uh, so our Thismus range consists of pigs in blankets, which are incredibly realistic, actually. And I suppose I would say that, but generally as, as, a, as a customer as well, they are. And we've also released our apple and sage isn't pork stuffing balls as well. And then finally, our sort of party mini sausages, which are great for um, any festivities and Christmassy things that you might have at home. How long does it take to like plan and the strategy for Christmas, for example? I suppose we started work on those products probably about nine months ago. So I think for us, we, we seem to be, I mean, we're still very new. The business is only just over two years old, but a pattern that's emerging is that it takes us nine months to deliver a new product. And there are some products which are like slightly longer term, like science-based projects, which will take much longer. But generally speaking, we're on about nine to 12 months. That's really interesting. I genuinely think those products sound great and I honestly can't wait to try them out. What, what do you think the, the space will look like in 10 years? Do you, do you have a grand vision for what the, the meat-free food space looks like and, and where do you guys fit in that vision? Was that 10 years? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Or we can go, so, you know, 10, 20 years, you know, whatever you would prefer to talk about. It gets even harder, the bigger the number. <laughs> and then I look even stupider in 20 years when I'm so wrong. Yeah, I don't think people are going to remember. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if people are listening to this in 20 years, we're doing something right. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I'll hedge myself and go with uh, go with 10. So I think um, that the breadth of the products will be so much bigger. So actually everybody talks at the moment about like, oh, it's so congested and crowded. But actually, if you look at all the animal-based products, which haven't yet got really compelling substitutes, you know, that, that number is incredibly high. So you'll probably find that, you know, things like eggs and chorizo and liver and like all the funny products that, that currently don't really exist meaningfully in plant-based, you'll probably see them. So you'll get a lot more, lot more breadth. And then also I suspect the way they're merchandised to us as consumers will change quite a lot because at the moment, everything is in that vegan vegetarian bay. And I hear more and more sort of murmurings from both consumers and retailers that that's going to change because it's actually quite limiting because if your mandate is to onboard all of the sort of meat eating flexitarians, 
And your execution to try and fulfill that mandate is to pigeonhole all those products in store in a place where those flexitarians don't really go, then you've got a bit of a problem, you know? So I think that you'll probably find in 10 years, those products sort of filtering into different areas of the supermarket, a bit like they have on restaurant menus, because I don't know how old you guys are, but when I was a kid, you'd have a vegetarian menu, if anything, but it was all quite sort of segregated. Whereas now, of course, if you go for a meal out, everything that's vegan or vegetarian is, is just simply stitched into the wider menu. And I think you'll probably see a similar sort of result in retail as well. Yeah, I think it would be really positive to actually have this bacon next to real bacon, for example, and give consumers that very clear, direct choice. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the goal. I, I, th I think one or two other results of, of your 10-year question might be that there'll be perhaps not quite such a long tail of brands because the sector probably needs some consolidation. This might be more of a five-year, actually, thing than 10-year, but I think the, the, the sector needs probably some consolidation. And there'll probably be a small number of winners and a slightly longer tail because at the moment it's more of a speed thing. And if you're like some like smaller brand who perhaps, you know, product quality isn't quite there, you probably still have a shot because of the buoyancy at the moment. And whereas I think in the future, whenever everyone gets their act together and big money starts piling in even more, you'll probably find consolidation. Yeah. I'm going to throw in my prediction for 20 years. So everyone will be able to tell, tell me that I'm wrong. And that, that is that I, I, I suspect that people might get to a point where there's less comparison between the meat free options and the meat it's trying to replace. And so, you know, there'll be these new foods made of combinations we're not used to. And I don't know what they'll be called, but they'll have names like startup names, which seem to be never ending and still crap. <laughs> so I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if there are just some, some new foods that come out that are meat free and. And that people feel less of a need to be building or a bacon equivalent or a chicken replacement or uh, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's really fair. And that, that's I've heard that quite a few times from people in statement and question form. And yeah, I can't get my head around it yet. I, I don't know. I, I, I probably would back cell cultivated meats quicker than I would your kind of whole new protein, you know, that we can't quite get our heads around yet, I would say. And the reason for that is that meat is so incredibly ingrained in our society that I think it's a longer than 20 year thing. I reckon if we're talking a hundred years uh, or even like 50 to a hundred years, then I'd probably be in your camp and I would say yeah. Yeah, new proteins. But I think, I think we're probably going to be talking meaty kind of stuff for the next 20 years. Right. No, I think I probably agree with that. I think it will be a very gradual generational change. Mm. I had another question about um, are you ever asked by supermarkets to consider white labeling and how do you manage that pressure? And, um, yeah, does it affect any of the negotiations that you have with them? Yeah. So, so there's no forcefulness, but, uh, the question is, is asked quite regularly by some of our customers, uh, in the retail space. It's not really an avenue that we're looking to go down because we're in the business of building value for the company and the shareholders. And in our space, if you become a somewhat or predominantly white label, you know, manufacturer or broker, even you're not really building like significant value. So, so it's not really an area that we'd like to go down. And also the other reason is that 
for everything we make, there's, I would argue, like significant know-how and some IP that goes into those products. So to commoditize those kind of competitive edges in that way would not, I don't think, be strategically sound of us. How many times have you had to say that? <laughs> I've never said that. I, I, I don't want to sound contrary to your question, but I've actually never said that. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. That's interesting. <laughs> so we want to get to know a bit more about Andy, the founder. So are there any traits or habits that you think make you a very good founder? Well, I, I don't know if I am a very good founder. I hope I'm a decent enough founder, but in terms of my strength areas, uh, I don't know, I, th- I think a little bit differently being a weirdo used to be like a bad thing. And now I think people are really receptive to strange ideas. And like, I have very off the wall kind of ideas when it comes to brand and marketing and comms. And I fulfill a kind of part-time creative director role in the business. So any creative I'm heavily involved in. And so I guess coming up with ideas that can have cut through with the press and media and, and customers and social, that's kind of like one of my things. I guess also I have no kind of, you know, just there's, there's an enormous tenacity when I'm trying to get something over the line and I don't mind asking so many times to external parties that it becomes kind of impolite or anything like that. So sometimes there'll be people who would suggest that I've got something a bit wrong with me in the sense that I sometimes, if something needs doing, I might phone someone 15 times in a day or something until they answer. Or I I can be quite full on in some respects because I just kind of latch on to that goal and and just keep pressing, pushing until it's kind of done. So I suppose that's another strength area. Does that mean you're unable to let go? if the time would be right to let go? I hope not, no, because I hope I'm pragmatic as well and relatively level-headed when it comes to, you know, knowing when something's completely impassable. I guess I just don't think that much is impassable, I suppose, which is, which is another, going back to your first question, it's probably another quality that good founders probably have to have is a sort of almost delusional kind of optimism. <laughs> No, super interesting. So something we always like to do with our guests is present them with a business dinner where you're allowed to invite three people. They can be whoever you want. So do you have ideas of who you would like to invite? So I think the first one, I read a book about a year ago called How to Stop Time. So for any of your listeners that haven't read it, it is a book about a guy who is born with a genetic sort of difference and he ages many, many times slower than your average human being. So he lives for, uh, and people like him, not many of them, but people like him live for kind of like 500, 1,000 years. So the main character in the book is, is a guy called Tom. And I'd like him to come to my dinner party because he had the most fantastic anecdotes in the book. Like he was a teacher in today's kind of day and age. And he was teaching his students about Shakespeare. And, you know, he was able to share anecdotes about what Shakespeare's breath smelled like and what the sounds and sights were really like back in the days of the plague. And it was just incredible to think about. So I'd love, I'd love him to come to my dinner party. That's a great one. That's definitely original. No one else has had him. <laughs> I love that book as well. I thought it was just brilliant. Wasn't it really special? Yeah, it really just took, sort of grabbed you by a scruff of the neck and wouldn't let you go. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah, I mean, with some of those books, like the concept is great and the execution is like, left something to be desired but i just thought with that it was just awesome in both areas yeah totally agree and then um probably ricky gervais for the lols and just like have a good time at dinner 
He's just such a funny guy. And also, I think he's a vegan as well. And we probably have a lot of war stories about, about plant-based food and talking about how we can bring down meat, meat eating and all that sort of thing. Love Ricky Gervais. And he just doesn't give, I don't know if we're allowed to swear, but he doesn't give that at all. <laughs> yeah. Switch is so cool. And then lastly, I would invite Vladimir Putin, I think, because I'm in a, a bubble in one respect, as probably most of us are, in that we don't really have like easy access to megalomaniac or profoundly some malevolent type of personalities. And one day, you know, perhaps in life later, I'd love to get into the area of not world domination, but um, maybe trying to help people who, who are subjugated in whatever way. And, and so it'd be good to understand how contemporary leader who perhaps is not as ethically orientated as they could be thinks that would be interesting definitely i think that's three match for originality i would love to join that dinner that sounds really good that's great stuff andy we've loved having you on the show it's been very interesting both hearing about the business and also kind of thoughts on the space which clearly is is hot and exciting for a lot of people thanks for coming on it's been a pleasure cheers thanks so much guys for for the invite and um yeah good to meet you that's it for this week i hope you were able to take away many learnings from this episode thankfully we have plenty more amazing guests and insightful conversations coming your way every week every wednesday be sure to subscribe to riding unicorns on apple spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts thank you again for listening if you're interested in supporting the show don't forget to follow us on twitter at riding unicorns underscore and follow us on LinkedIn as well by searching Riding Unicorns. See you next time.